following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Breedville, we have one. We have an elder who has who has now since retired, but not not fully. He he works at a mortuary service out in Spartanburg at Floyd's Mortuary. And I asked him yesterday at Presbytery because I was coming here to bring this text to you. I said, "So is it true? Can you go deeper than six feet under when you're when you're burying somebody at a funeral?" And he said, "No. I mean, six feet is typically standard." He said, "The interesting thing about it, though." is that in most states, not every state, but in many states, you can actually bury someone on top of somebody else in that case and still, uh, and still get away with it. And in fact, in Louisiana, they, uh, or in some countries, maybe it's also still in Louisiana, that they actually rent out graves and that after a period of time, if you've not rented the grave, they push the body out and then they put somebody else in. But the, but the reality is, is that the, the nature of it is still certain. He's actually describing it when they were typically preparing a grave. They've got the headstone already. They've dug the hole. But they've also got a box that they're putting people in that they're lowering them down into. And they shut it. And then they put cement over it and dirt and everything else like that. And so the natural conclusion would be what? Nobody's getting anybody out of the ground. And not only that, nobody is coming out of the ground by any willpower of their own. I mean, after all, you've just buried a dead person. They're not coming back up out of that grave. And such, when you think about that, many of us have been to funerals time and time again. They're somber occasions. They're joyous occasions if they're believers. But the reality is that the, that the reality of death is always set before us in real and tangible ways. While for believers we do recognize and rejoice at the fact that the dearly departed are with the Lord and that one day we shall indeed see them again, there's still the reality of death that sin has laid upon us all, that no man apart from the Lord can be saved, that no man apart from the Lord will live again. In fact, as we are reminded in Ezekiel, who shall make these dry bones live? The Lord our God will make these dry bones live. And so as we're dealing with, therefore, the certainty of physical death, that we sometimes still get clouded to the reality of, the, of spiritual death as well. Spiritual death that we see here addressed in this passage. We don't, we don't fear it. Even as Christians, we sometimes forget about what we once were. Paul reminds us of that. Paul reminds us of our, not just a sick condition. He doesn't remind us just of a, you know, we make a few mistakes here and we can make it all better. No, he describes our sinful conditions as still being once freed at one level from the power and dominion of sin, raised to newness of life by the Spirit, but also the need of continual renewal where one day death will lose its power, it will lose its sting, and sin will be no more. Because we'll see Christ. We'll be with Him in the heavenlies as Paul describes, us, he describes it here today. And we need to see then that, that reality, the reality of spiritual death. And this comes off the back in Ephesians, in Ephesians after chapter 1 where Paul gives this long, ornate, run-on sentence about the glory of God and redemption and an election and his salvation, thanking God for the believers, thanking God for the faith that he has found in Ephesus. It actually reminds, uh, stands out to me that when, when Zach mentioned that Smyrna is the only church from Revelation that still has an evangelical witness, 
it reminds you more than of the sincerity and thanksgiving that Paul had in his prayer in chapter 1 that he found faith there. But even as he's reminding the faithful in Ephesus of the greatness of God's electing grace, he still, while having no particularly major issue in mind, still at the same time reminds them of what I want to tell you about tonight and teaching you what this text tells us, and that is that God's grace is vital for your Christian life. God's grace is vital for your Christian life. And I want to unpack it in three ways. First of all, in verses 1 to 3, I want to tell you why you need it. In verses, two, in verses 4 to 7, I want to tell you why you need to live by it. And then in verses 8 to 10, I want to tell you how it helps you obey. Why you need it, why you live by it, why you obey by it as well, by God's grace. It's vital for our lives. Let's look at that first idea then, why, God's, why you need God's grace. Look how he describes it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, like I said, like I said at the outset with the man who, with the grave, you, know, you can't get more dead than dead. I mean, once you're dead, spiritually speaking, there's no getting up, there's no walking around, there's no breathing, there's no this, there's no that. And what Paul is hearkening back to is what we found in Genesis chapter 3, where our parents, first parents, being deceived by Satan in the garden, seeing the, the delight and the beauty and the goodness of the fruit, still disobeyed God's word not to eat it, and still plunged the world into sin and misery, into death, into, into bondage of sin. The reality for Paul is not, is not mistaken. We are, de- we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But note how also the, this absolute nature with how he talks about it, he still talks about them in a, in a really rather almost zombified way. Uh, my pastor growing up one time talked about sinners unconverted as you know, almost like walking dead men, like you saw something like zombies walking around almost. And, and really spiritually, that's how it is. Spiritually speaking, we're, we are dead not just to... To God, we're dead to his, to his love. We're dead to His grace. We're dead to His mercy. We're dead to overtures of His grace and mercy. We're dead to the overtures of the gospel. We're dead to Christian fellowship. We have no, see no need for it. We see no use for it. The goodness and the glory of being able to commune with God is just perfunctory. It doesn't matter. I can't help but think of a, young, of a young man who I know where he says, I ju-, he claims to be a Christian, I do not see the need or the use for reading my scriptures or being in church. It's just, it's, it's just it's that dead to him. It's gotten that dead to him at this point. And that's what Paul is reminding them of what you once were. He's speaking in the past tense, and we'll come back to uh, why it's significant later. But notice how Paul's describing these, these dead men. Again, like I said, dead men don't get up, they don't walk, but that's how he's describing them. You once walked in it. You kept company with your trespasses and sins. You followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. This is certainly a reference to Satan, certainly a reference to his power. There were some commentators that were we're wrestling with, okay, is he saying, is Paul saying then that, you know, he's omnipresent, like he's always present, he's here, there, and everywhere, he can deceive us? That, that's not really what he's saying. Rather, what he's saying is that satanic forces, Satan is working and deceiving all people, seeking or going about whom he may devour. And not only that, his demons are also at the work of it, or in that work as well. This is how Satan is operating in our world, but this is what we once followed. And Paul doesn't leave it just simply in the spiritual realm. He goes down very, down, very much down to our nature. 
I alluded to it a little while ago, the sinfulness of our natures, the deadness with which we once were. And he describes it. Not only did we follow Satan, did we follow the sin of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working disobedience into us. That's why we can't obey. Is because Satan is still at work. Now, parents, I imagine that if you had a child who, who obeyed you every single time, that would be, be glorious. It would be like heaven on earth. But we know why they don't. And we know why we don't sometimes when we, are, when we disobey our professors, when we disobey our uh, pastors, our elders, our teachers. Why is that? Because of the remnants of our spiritual deadness that's still there, the spiritual remnants of sin that still are in us. But verse 3, he continues on with it. He says, you, he says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We once lived like this. We once lived for ourselves, fulfilling the passions and desires of our hearts. At one time, heard a story of a, of, a, of a man who was caught in the act of, of, uh, of th- a thieving. He was stealing, he was robbing a, a convenience store. And when asked, you know, why did you do it? He said, well, you know, my buddy who was driving the getaway car made me do it. And I was like, well, no one made him do it. He wanted to do it. He wanted to do it because, like, why does anybody want to do anything? Why does anybody want to rob a store? Why does anybody want to, to steal money? Why does anybody want to cheat? Success, selfish gain. And that's how Paul's describing us here. We live in terms of, our, of ourselves, self-righteousness, selfishness, self-serving, self-aggrandizement. It's me, myself, and I. That's what Paul is describing here, fulfilling our own desires like the rest of mankind. Not only that, but he describes them as children of wrath, objects of wrath. Destined for wrath. Now we like to sometimes think that you know our you know we 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 see children and we're, and we're like oh they're so beautiful. But Paul's describing us here as like every last one of us here born left outside of Christ are destined for God's wrath because we're all sinners because we're all desperately hopelessly wicked dead in sin without the work of Christ in our lives we stand nothing else but to stand just before God not just before God, but wicked before God, deserving His wrath and curse. But the significance of all of this is if Paul can't make a dead man more dead, he tells us what their ultimate end is, and that is wrath. But note here also something else, because this comes in as we, uh, as we describe our first lesson. Look how he describes it, though. He says, you were dead. You once walked you were by nature children of wrath. He's speaking to them in the past tense. As if that, you know, this is how you once were, but you are no longer because of what he's going to unpack here in a moment. Now, for a church that like Ephesus that has, you know, no particularly major issue on the forefront, not like the Galatians or the Colossians with the Judaizer heresy, not like the Corinthians with the rank immorality that was going on in the Corinthian church. There, there's not much really going on here in Paul's mind except to encourage them in the faith in a place particularly that was dominated in Paul's day by Greek mythology, pagan worship. You know, Paul was actually run out of town because he was hurting the, the idol factory uh, industry. Why would he need to remind them? 
It's the same reason why he's reminding you of the same thing. You cannot understand God's grace unless you understand the depth and severity of your own sin. You cannot understand God's grace unless you first and foremost recognize the severity of your own sin. Look how he describes it. You are children of wrath. You have nothing to stand on. You have nothing by which to claim. No, nothing by which to plead. In fact, the thing about it is, and this is what makes it particularly odious, the nature of the sinful corruption that still remains in us, is the fact that sometimes with Christians that, we, that I've seen and heard of Christians doing some of the most ugliest things in the whole wide world, stuff that even pagans wouldn't do. The backbiting, the fighting, the, the gossiping, the, the character assassination that happens not just with congregants, but with ministers even. I mean, who could forbid The reality is that these things still remain within us. In fact, when I was was working at a restaurant up in in North Carolina, someone mentioned to me one time, and this this is to serve serve the point of an illustration, not to, to lift anything up about myself, but they said something like, you know, you're the first Christian that seems to mean it. Because here's the here's what they were getting at. There were times where they would have Christians at work at this restaurant where they would do everything, the people who knew they weren't Christians, and even still knew what was wrong and knew what Christians weren't supposed to be doing, they knew that they were doing exactly what they were doing that was wrong, and that the Christians were sometimes, in order to feel in, to get in, to be liked, to be appreciated, to be accepted before the world, they would do that and what was worse. They would do everything that they were doing and do it much worse. Drugs, alcohol, any form of immorality. I mean, they were just, it was, it was absolutely wicked. And what Paul is reminding them here is that that sort of thing still remains in us. It remains in us until we see God in glory. And yet at the same time, he still calls us saints. He addresses them as such in, Psalm, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the saints here at Antioch. And unless you understand that, you know, we can sit back and look at our brother, those brothers and sisters, or presumably brothers and sisters, where I worked or in the, or in the ministry or in the church, whatever, however many ugly things they do. The moment we have a self-righteous spirit come up, we have forgotten the grace of God in our hearts. And that's exactly the, uh, the consolation that, Paul, that John rather records in Jesus' sayings in Revelation. He's like, I have all of these things. You do all of these things well. He's writing to the Ephesians in Revelation. But this one thing I have against you, you have forgotten your first love. Friends, don't forget that. Don't forget the reason why you're a believer. You're a believer here today because of the sovereign work and sovereign grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, as we see in the second point, why you live by it, who loved you before the foundation of the world, who loved you and sent His Son to redeem you. Let's look at that second idea. You live by it in verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. That, that, that idea there in verse 4, but God. It's not to say that, you know, as Paul is making this transition to a new idea, to a new section, as he's about to unpack the vitality of God's 
God's grace for believers. He's not making this transition to say, but God, as if he's saying, well, none of that really matters anymore. You know, none of that's, that's true. Now you're perfect. Now you're great. Now you're holy. Now you have nothing else to worry about. That's not what he's saying. What he's really saying is that even though you were this way, I mean, he even says it in the text, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God, who had an abundance of mercy, who had a greatness of love, by grace, he made you alive in Christ Jesus, your Lord. He made you alive. So you talk about you know, the idea of dead men living. Yeah, Christ, the, 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 one of the greatest works in all of history is that because our Savior lives, he has been risen again in the heavenly places. Because he lives and because he reigns in glory, we who are his are alive in Christ and we sit with him now in the heavenly places. We have that inheritance that he's talking about in Ephesians 1 and he brings back here in chapter 2. The richness of God's mercy and the greatness of His love are a series of superlatives to to describe really how indescribably great is God's mercy and love for sinners. How how great is rich is He in mercy? How great is His love with which He loved us that He should He should even love us at all? Because when you talk about the deadness of sin. When you talk about us following the prince of the power of the air, this is something that you and I and Adam freely chose. And he would have been just as right and just as holy and just as loving and just as good and just as merciful to have started over from scratch or just did away with Adam and Eve and never started again. He would have been just as right To leave you as a child of wrath. To leave you as the backbiting slanderer and character assassinator. The loveless, unforgiving, bitter, petty, whatever it might have been. Vengeful. But the riches of his love. And that's the heart of the gospel. That it's not that we have loved God, as John says, but that he first loved us. That's the heart of it, that God loved us first. And it, it, it just it, it makes you sit back and think, you know, what in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling, as the, as the hymnist writes. I have nothing to bring. We have nothing to offer. We have nothing to... He has, we have everything to gain, and, and he lost his son. Jesus gave his son up, or God gave his son up. And it's, it's amazing, too, here, I was listening to a passage from, I was listening to a, to a message from a former Philadelphia preacher named Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he was, he was preaching this sermon as he's illustrating the gospel. This was probably back in the, I don't know, maybe 40s or 50s or something like that. I don't remember which, but it's not important. What is important is this. When he got up and was talking to his congregation, he said, you know, you know what, if I had an auditorium full of hundreds, thousands, millions of people, I would not say that if you do not accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be lost. He even went so far as to call that false doctrine. It's not that you will be lost, as if someday he knew where you were and then lost you and maybe he'll find you later. You were born lost. You were born in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in them. But by God's grace, he gives you new life. So when you ask the question with Ezekiel, how can you make these dry bones live? Who can give us the grace? Who can give us the life? Who can give us the mercy? The God of mercy. 
the God of love, the God of grace. And he tells us that in the following passages. It's by grace you have been saved. And, raised, and he raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places. And here's the, here's the reason. That in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now what's grace? Um, at, at its very, very essence, it was defined to me this way. It was very simply, it is God's free and unmerited favor to the undeserving. Do you deserve God's favor? No. Do I deserve God's favor? No. But the superlatives keep on, not just simply that he saved us with his, with his grace, but he raised us, seated us, that he might display the, 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 the rich riches, really, of his grace, the immeasurableness of his riches uh, to the whole world, that in the coming ages he might, he might show it. It might be displayed for all the world to see, such that we can rejoice in the riches of his grace for all eternity on the one hand, and that those in hell may know and say that this is what I wish I could have. I could have had this. But even still, they may not. And it's displayed for all. That anybody who may, who it's displayed to all the world. That any and everybody who, who the gospel is offered to may come. May believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The one who gives you this redemption. Who just as surely as he lived and died and rose again. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that inheritance, that reality of living forever is yours today. That makes then the death that we die almost like a veil. You pass from life to life to live with Christ for all eternity. And that's the greatest display for the world. That dead men live and dead women live. We all get to be with our Lord Jesus Christ. But friends, the heart of that all, the heart of it all is God's love for you. And that's the heart. That God loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus says that whosoever will may come, and if you so much as give your heart to Jesus Christ, cling to him by faith, you will be saved, and he will keep you saved to all eternity. That's, that's what he tells us. That's what he gives us. He gives us himself. That in turn, we may also give ourselves one to another. How do we love? How could we then say, well, all of that, that God loves me, and then not turn around and then love one another, because that has its implications. It has the implication that if God loved us, if God first loved us, then so we should love one another as well. And John defines it, actually, in his epistle. John defines what love is. Not that we should love simply in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. That we should deny ourselves. That we should seek the good of others. That we should forgive others and and serve them even if we get nothing in return. I'm sure time and time again that there have been many times in in your lives that you've opened your homes to somebody. You have taken someone off the street for a job interview and not a thank you. Not a single solitary thank you. Perhaps you've labored hard for someone, for someone for many years, and be it that they were feeble and unable to take care of themselves. And it just never seemed to cross their mind to say, thank you. Or, you know, I appreciate that. I love you. I see the love with which you show me. 
the heart of Christian love is to give yourself over to that even if you don't get anything in return for it. Because what did Jesus Christ do? When he lo- even when He first loved us and gave Himself for us, what did He get in return? A cross and holes in His hands and holes in His feet. A crown of thorns and markings all over His back. And He was forsaken on that cross by His Father for you and for me. And if that is the example of our Savior, how much more then would that be said of us? That if we may not get death in return like our Lord, but we should love out of the same riches and greatness of His love with which He loved us, that's the storehouse with which we are living out of. So we love one another just as He loved us. The third thing then, is we see God's grace is vital for our Christian lives, we don't see just why we need it and why we live by it, but also that by God's grace we obey it. It helps us to obey Him. Look with me at verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, we've already defined grace as God's free and unmerited favor to the undeserving. But he, he talks about it, this, the nature of this gracious salvation, something we don't deserve. But he then describes it that this is not of your own doing. Now, you know, I want you to want to picture, you, picture for you something of a guy who's, you know, just work, he's the, he's the, the, the at, his, at his job, he is the, the one who's known to be the most arrogant. Like he loves to pat himself on the back. You've all worked in jobs where there's someone like that. That just, they just love to tell you how great they are. And in fact, in this one story I want to tell you, think of a man who was able to, you know, fold, every, fold all the shirts, but he works in a department store, mind you, so there's not much greatness about that. But he still, he still can't help himself. He, imagine a guy who folds all of his shirts perfectly and he, he, he shows you how he's ordered everything just right. He's like, this is perfect. I couldn't have even done any better myself, even if I wanted to. Then his boss comes around for inspection, and then his boss fires him. And he's like, get out of here. You're done. He's like, what? I, I did it so perfectly. He's like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. You actually have this other stuff here that you haven't folded up perfectly or whatever. So you're done. You're gone. And if you and I, that's how sometimes we can live our Christian lives, as if we can somehow, somehow deserve God's acceptance, if we can deserve God's salvation. And that's, that's got to be a ori- uh, shift in our mindset. That's got to be a shift in our orientation. There's nothing we can accept. There's nothing that, can, uh, that we can do that God would accept us. It's purely by His grace. Purely by His grace. And, and being favorable toward us and not giving us what we do deserve because He loves us. Because he loves his people. He loves sinners that they should all be made alive, that they should all come to Jesus Christ. It's not of our own doing. It's not by anything wrought in us. You can, a dead man can no more act, make, a, can take it, make an act by, of his own will than uh, physically speaking than we can spiritually speaking. I would like to ask, we have a graveyard over here. At the end of the service... Uh, kids, I would like for you to go out to one of those graves and ask one of those dead people to get up. 
and tell me what happens. Nothing's going to happen. And that's the reality with our salvation as well. We can do nothing. We can no more cling to Christ in saving faith than any one of you can go out to that, to that graveyard and tell any one of the, the dead people out there to get up. But our catechism teaches us this. It teaches us that saving faith is a work of God's free grace whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. He works that faith in us. He gives us that gift of faith to cling to Christ, to know who we're, to whom we're believing, to commit ourselves to Him, and to wholeheartedly trust Him with our very lives. That's what the faith is that He's saying, that He's given us that we may be saved, and He gives that purely by His grace. So there is no room for boasting. There is no room by which we can say, look at me and how great I am. We're actually talking about uh, the doctrine of election and saving grace in Sunday school today. And, and one of the things one of our elders pointed out, or one of our people rather pointed out, I don't remember if it was an elder or not, pointed out that this should actually humble us. It's like, you think? I didn't say that. But you think? If you truly understand how undeserving you are of anything, let alone salvation, then the grateful attitude, the dutiful obedience, the loving obedience that we have toward God becomes almost natural because of what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which he prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should abide we are firmly and formally molded, created by God. New creations, as Paul describes it. The old is gone, the new has come. We are made holy and fully by the work of Christ. And so the thing that we need to remember by, the, by, by this is this. The vitality of saving grace and our salvation means that we can never have a true uh, appreciation, a true love, a true desire to keep coming to the Lord, to coming to the Lord for help and grace and mercy unless we understand ourselves as those sinners who need it most. We need it every single day. Not only do we need it, but we must be able to live by it. We have to live by God's grace because... Just, it's more than just simply being able to have breath in our lungs, clothes on our back, but to have life itself. And beyond that, we are created by God to obey Him, to lovingly obey Him. You can know more by coming to church or Bible reading or prayer or, or any other noble thing by which we come, come and commune with God. We do those things because we love. We should mourn, as as one of my professors mentioned one time, we should mourn when we don't have time in the mornings or in the evenings to commune with God. But by His grace, we do it dutifully, obediently, because of His grace in us that we be enabled to do it and to love it and to cherish it. And if we're living by God's grace... We're also uh, operating and doing uh, by His grace what He demands of us to do. 
You see the two great commandments, love your God and love your neighbor. Can we keep those in ourselves? No. By His grace we can. And the reality is, friends, at the end of it all, if we are to have any acceptance before God, it must come only and exclusively through our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has made us alive, whose Spirit works in us faith, unites us to Jesus Christ, that in Him as He lives, so we live also. That's the life we lead. As sinners who know we, are not, we do not deserve it. But of a God who loves us beyond measure. That by grace we are restored and given new life. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for your work in saving us. I do pray, Father, that you will help us to live in a way that is acceptable before you because you have made us acceptable in your Son. I pray that you will help us to love you and cherish you more and to live in such a way that we would indeed magnify the great love with which you've loved us before the world. And I pray, Father, that as we give our tithes and we give our offerings, that we will do so out of love and trust in you to use them for your honor, your glory, your purposes here at Antioch and wherever you may call us to go. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.